All right, well, uh, this morning is the third week in the sermon series that I am doing entitled Meeting Jesus, looking through the Gospel of John at various interactions that Jesus had with people. Last week, actually, it wasn't me, it was Brian Bywater of Street Church in Hartford who was up here sharing. Um, but it's good to be back with you this week. And we're going to be looking this morning at uh, John chapter 3, an interaction that Jesus had with a man, a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. And it's found in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. The verses will be up here on the screen, or there's Bibles um, in the back as well if you want to grab one and follow along. So let me begin just by reading the first couple verses of John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Let me stop there before I continue and just kind of fill you in on who this Nicodemus character is. Uh, It gives us a couple clues. We don't have much to go on, but it does say that he was a Pharisee, which means he was a religious leader in Israel, part of the group that stressed careful observance to God's law and the tradition of the elders. He was also a part, it says, of the Jewish ruling council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin, which was made up of high priests, current and former high priests. Uh, They were responsible primarily for trying false prophets, for rooting out idolatry in in Israel. And so we can guess, surmise, that Nicodemus was older, pretty educated, probably a pretty moral, good person, probably rich, probably powerful. And he's coming to Jesus probably, you know, as as someone saying, hey, you're the up-and-coming rabbi here. Let's, Let's try to work together. You know, we can help you. You can help us. Let's kind of try to meet together. But he's also coming at night which may mean that he didn't necessarily have the backing of all the other Pharisees. He's kind of coming under the cloak of night, not coming in the light of the day. But it seems like his, uh, you know, his motives and intentions are good. Here he wants to kind of feel out this Jesus and see if they can work together, join forces maybe. But Jesus, in response, takes it a completely different direction. Let's read verses 3 to 21. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. 
Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is God's word. So we've got Nicodemus, this older, educated, rich religious leader coming to Jesus, the up-and-coming rabbi, saying, you know, let's see if we can work together on this. And Jesus takes in a completely different direction, right? And as we go along, Nicodemus stops talking and just starts listening. And Jesus starts explaining things that are obviously beyond what Nicodemus understood. So what is it that Jesus says that just stopped this good religious man in his tracks? I think it's summed up in verse 3. Oh, there we go. Jesus declared in verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Why does Jesus say this? Why does, why does he use this phrase born again? What does that mean? Um, before we get into what the significance of that term is, let me just say a couple preliminary thoughts about that because the phrase born again certainly has specific meanings in our culture today, right? To many people, you hear that phrase, many of you already have assumptions of what born again means. I can remember the first time I ever heard the phrase. I remember sitting at my kitchen table as a child reading the Hartford Current, and there was some article in there about the baseball player, Daryl Strawberry, the New York Mets. And it was talking about how he had left a life of cocaine addiction and was now a born-again Christian. And I had never heard that phrase before. But in my mind, it meant that a born-again must be someone who's left a depraved, sinful lifestyle and now is a religious person. That was my understanding of what it meant to be born again. Other people today might hear the phrase born again and think that it refers to a narrow-minded, fundamentalist type of Christian, right? Someone who thinks that everyone else is going to hell unless they're a born again. doesn't matter if you go to other churches, but if you're not a born again, then you're going to hell. You know, I don't know what it is for you when you hear the phrase born again, what it means, but first of all, just notice that Jesus came up with the term, right? This isn't a modern phrase. Jesus came up with this term, and he applies it to not Daryl Strawberry, some decadent, coked-out baseball player. He applies it to a very good religious man. You know, someone who was the most religious man, one of the most religious men in Israel, and he tells him, you must be born again. He's not saying it to the woman caught in adultery that we looked at last week. He's saying it to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So there's something about what born again means that maybe isn't the same as what we think it is today. Secondly, notice as well that Jesus only says this phrase to one man, okay? Jesus doesn't go around saying to everyone, you must be born again, and you must be born again, and you must be born again. He only says it one time to this man, Nicodemus. What you have instead with Jesus is that he tends to tailor his invitation, so to speak, to the individual and to where they're coming from and maybe to the obstacles they're dealing with, the idols they have. You think of the woman caught in adultery we looked at last week. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. There's a Samaritan woman at the well. He says to her, I can give you living water. The crowd that follows him after he multiplies the bread and the fishes and they're following him because they want their bellies filled, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life. To the rich young ruler who wants to follow him, he says, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. I could go on and on, but you see that Jesus 
has a way of recognizing what the idols are in each person's heart or what the obstacles are and speaking directly to that. And so we should take that to heart, okay? It's not that you go around telling everyone, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. You know, certainly for those who come from a Hindu background, for instance, someone who believes that you want to get off the cycle of reincarnation, coming and telling them you must be born again is bad news to them, right? It's, it's, again, you tailor the message to the individual. And so we learn as we look at this, there's a specific reason that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So what was it? Out of all the possible phrases he could have used with Nicodemus, why does he tell him you must be born again? My understanding, my guess would be that Nicodemus was someone who was born an Israelite. You know, he was by his birth, a child of Abraham. He had risen up in the ranks to the point where he could probably think that he was right with God because of his heritage, because of his morality, because of his religiosity. He probably thought he was right with God because of his natural birth, because of all he had accomplished. Now Jesus comes and tells him, your natural birth, your heritage counts for nothing. You have to be born again. You have to go back to the beginning. God needs to do something in your life. It's not about what you've done, what you've accomplished, your own resume. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be right with God, God has got to do something in your life from above. So again, Jesus has a way of speaking to each individual's idols or the obstacles that keep them from God. And for this man, Nicodemus, the thing that seemed to be keeping him from God was probably trusting in his own heritage as an Israelite, as a Pharisee, trusting in his own accomplishments, his own morality. And Jesus tells him, that all counts for nothing with God. Your spiritual resume will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. You got to start over. So again, this phrase is not necessarily useful for everyone, but you think about today, like who might this phrase be useful for? Maybe the children sitting out there right now who grew up in Christian homes and think that they're right with God because, well, my parents are Christians. I was raised in the church. Therefore, I am, you know, I know God. I'm a Christian. To you, Jesus might say, you must be born again. Your natural birth counts for nothing. Your heritage that your, your parents have given you counts for nothing before God. You must be born again. God must do something supernatural in your life. It can't come through your parents. Maybe he would say that to those who think that, well, because I'm Catholic or because I'm Baptist or because whatever denomination, I'm right with God because I'm in the right, you know, stream. I'm in the right denomination. He'd say, no, you must be born again. It's not about your heritage, your morality, your religiosity. It's not about that that makes you right with God. God has got to do something supernatural in your life that you must be born again. So what is the significance of this phrase? You must be born again. Three things I want to point out from this passage. The first is this, that salvation is a supernatural work of God. Jesus using this phrase, you must be born again, shows us that salvation coming into the kingdom of heaven, coming to know God is a supernatural work of God. Again, let's read verses 3 through 10. He says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Again, how many of you chose to be born? How many of you decided, I want to be born to those parents at that time and in that place? Using the metaphor of birth shows us that it's a supernatural work of God. Nobody chooses their own means and location of physical birth. And in the same way, it's the spiritual birth. He says it's the spirit blows in where it pleases, where he pleases. You don't choose to be born again. It's a supernatural work of God. It's something God must do in you. And he even chides Nicodemus. He says, you, you, wait, you're, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand this? Because he may have, if he was, you know, thinking back to the prophets, remembered what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus saying, or this was God saying, I'm going to do a supernatural work in you. I'm going to replace that heart of stone that doesn't know me, doesn't respond to me, and put my spirit in you that you might know me and follow me. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. God putting his Holy Spirit in you, giving you eternal life, giving you a spiritual life, giving you new desires, new vision, a new consciousness. Again, think of the, the, the phrase he uses, being born again. It's not moral improvement, Right? Salvation is not moral improvement. It's not, I once was bad, and now I'm good. I once was addicted to drugs, and now I'm not anymore. It's not moral improvement. And it's not enlightenment from the respect of, I once was ignorant, and now I know the truth. It's not what it is. It's not that I didn't know, and now I know. I was bad, then I'm good. No, he says, you were dead, and now you're alive. You were spiritually dead, incapable of giving yourself spiritual life, And then God put his Holy Spirit in you and gave you spiritual life. Regeneration, the theological term, giving you new life. In other words, the the damage is much worse than you think, right? It's not that you just can like tweak a few things and be right before God. But he's saying the damage is so bad that you're dead. You're spiritually dead and no one, nothing nothing that you can do on your own is ever going to make you right with God. You must be born again. God must do something supernaturally in you. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5 and 8 through 10, he said, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I would say that Paul is on the same wavelength as Jesus here. 
It's not about you were bad, now you're good, you were ignorant, now you know, but instead you were dead spiritually, but God brought you to life by the power of his Holy Spirit. You're God's creation, you're God's workmanship. It's the gift of God, not by works, not by anything that you've done. It's a supernatural work of God. So listen closely. That means that any of you who think that you can stand before God one day with your spiritual resume in hand and say, look at all the things I did, God. You know, I gave to the poor faithfully. I I served people. I did all these things, God. Anyone who thinks that they can stand before God with a spiritual resume and think that God is going to say, you know, well done, you know, you're fooling yourself. It says you must be born again. It must be a supernatural work of God in your life. Even Nicodemus, even the most religious, moral, educated, powerful man in Israel needed to be born again. Number two, second thing that's significant about the phrase born again is this, that trusting in Jesus' death for us gives us eternal life. Eternal life comes as we trust in Jesus' death for us. In verse 14 of that passage, John 3, Jesus alludes to an odd story from Numbers Numbers 21. You might have noticed he said this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man is a way of referring to himself. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If you're unfamiliar with the story he's referring to about Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness, it's from Numbers 21. I'll just read it briefly. Verses 4 through 9. They traveled from Mount, this is the, the uh, Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and they said, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So Jesus trying to help Nicodemus understand what God is doing in him and what the need is for eternal life here and how you become born again. He refers to this story, this odd story of how the Israelites rebelled against God and as a result, these venomous snakes came and bit them and that as they were dying, they cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to God and God said, put a snake on this staff, you know, on this stick. And anyone who looks to that will be healed, will be saved. And Jesus says, you know that crazy, weird story from Numbers 21? That was pointing to me. It's not about the snake on a pole. It's about what it points to, which is Jesus, the Son of Man, he says, who's going to be lifted up on a cross so that everyone who looks to him will be healed, will be saved, even though they're dying, even though they have been infected, not by the venom of a snake, but by the venom of sin that is killing them. 
everyone who's been infected by sin, he says, who looks to Jesus on the cross, dying for their sins, will be saved, will be healed, he says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I mean, most of you know that verse, right? But then he continues and he says, yeah, that's the good news, but there is bad news along with that. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In other words, all those Israelites who were dying of the venom of that snake bite and said, I don't want to look at that snake on a pole, that's ridiculous. They died. It's just in the same way, all of us have been infected by sin. God has made a way by Jesus and his death on the cross so that all who look at him will be healed, will be saved. But those who choose not to, who choose to reject that, he says they stand condemned already. They are still under God's wrath. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins, there's that phrase again, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Or as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21, as we read this earlier, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, the one who was without sin took the venom, right? He took the venom of the snake. He took the sin, the punishment that we deserved so that we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. That was, is what that phrase born again teaches us. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. None of us can make ourselves be born again. No one can save themselves. And that salvation comes as we trust in Jesus' death. That's what gives us eternal life. Just as that snake was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on the cross, that all who look to him will have eternal life. And the third thing is this, that the evidence of being born again is a life growing in Christ-likeness. You know, if you have been born, you will grow. And if you've been born again, you will grow. There will be a before and after. There will be a difference. The evidence that you have been born again, the evidence that you know God, that his spirit is in you, is not that you prayed a prayer when you were eight years old at VBS. You know, the evidence is that you are growing in Christ-likeness. I mean, that may have been the moment that you were saved when you prayed that prayer as an eight-year-old at VBS. But the evidence is not that you prayed a prayer. The evidence is that you look back and you can see that you are growing in Christ-likeness. Because if you've been born, you will grow. If you've been born, you will grow. Even Nicodemus, he shows up twice more in the Gospels. Uh, In John chapter 7, he's encouraging the Pharisees not to killed Jesus, he's saying, why don't you just listen to him? You know, consider what he has to say before you condemn him, even though the Pharisees, you know, huge backlash against him for saying that. And then in John 19, after Jesus dies and Joseph of Arimathea takes the body, it's Nicodemus who comes and helps him prepare Jesus' body for burial. So maybe even Jesus, maybe Nicodemus got it. Maybe he was truly born again. Maybe he did truly put his faith in Jesus. But look at your life, please. Hold up a mirror right now. <laughs> metaphorically speaking, at your life? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in you? Is there evidence that you know God? Is there evidence that you have been born again, that you have been made into a new creation? Is there a growth in Christ-likeness? 
Some verses you could think about are this. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, don't mishear that, right? Because most of us read that and we're like, wait a minute, what? It's not saying if you're imperfect, right? It's saying that there will be a shift in your life from a self-centeredness, you know, drawn to just sin and living for yourself to a life that is now oriented towards God. It's a life that now wants him, not oriented towards sin. You know, it's not a matter of taking a picture, but more taking a movie of your life, so to speak. The movie of your life should reveal a life that is oriented towards God. It's going to be one that continually displays the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, if he's replaced the old hard heart with the Holy Spirit, then he says, now the fruit of the Spirit will start to come from your life. So again, hold up that mirror and look at your life. Is there evidence that you're growing in the fruit of the Spirit in Christ-likeness? 1 John 4, 7, the one who's born again will increasingly love as Christ loved. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Is there a growth in love for your brothers and sisters, love for others. I could go on and on, but again, hold that mirror up. I look back at my life. I had a clear before and after. I was 18 years old when I knelt by my bed in Buckley room 424 at Yukon and said, God, I know where I belong and it's with you. And I have that benefit of looking and seeing the before and after. You know, It wasn't that anyone taught me but things changed. There was a desire to know God that was not there before. I wanted to read the Bible, and it made sense to me in a way that it never had before. It was just a dry, meaningless book before that. Now, all of a sudden, it was coming alive. There was a desire to spend time with other Christians, which I had never had before. There was a, a draw to worship that had never been there before. There was a sensitivity to sin, that things that before had seemed fine, no big deal to me. Now, all of a sudden, I knew there were things that were not good for me, not good for others. These were things that were evidence that something was different in me, that God had put his Holy Spirit in me. Again, it wasn't because all of a sudden someone was teaching me what I needed to think, anything like that. Something had changed within me. If you look at your life, and the Bible's still meaningless to you, and and, and there's no draw to it, Maybe the fault is not that the Bible is a meaningless, dry book. Maybe the fault is that you are not born again. Maybe the fault is that God's Spirit is not in you. If there is no desire for worship, for fellowship, for those things, no increase in love. Maybe the fault is not with the church, with other Christians. Maybe the fault is that you haven't been born again, that His Holy Spirit is not in you. And maybe this is the day where God is calling you to Himself, And he is saying, I want to give you my Holy Spirit. I want to give you eternal life. I want to show you what it looks like to know me, to be known by me, to follow me. One of the great pictures of what this might look like, look look at Paul in Philippians 3, 4 through 11. 
This is like someone who was just like Nicodemus and now has been transformed. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. Doesn't that sound like something that Nicodemus would say? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I read those words, and some of you, you feel it in your spirit, right? Some of you, I read those words, and you say, yes, I want to know Christ too. All the stuff that I used to trust in, all the stuff I used to live for, it's like rubbish. Garbage. Scubalon is the Greek word. I don't want it anymore. I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. I want to know Christ. I'm living for him now. My life has been changed. It's been reoriented. Some of you read those words and it just resonates with you. You get that. And some of you, it doesn't. It's falling on deaf ears right now. And maybe that is because you do not know God. Maybe it is because you do not have his Holy Spirit in you. That you have not been born again. Hold that mirror up. And if this is meaningless to you and it makes no sense to you, then when we come to this time of prayer, then ask God to give you his Holy Spirit, to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life. The promise, as Paul said again, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You will be transformed. You will know what you were created for, to know God, be known by him, to live for him. If this is falling on deaf ears and a stone heart for you. If it's just bouncing off and it doesn't even like, you don't relate at all. But you want to know him. You want to understand. Then I'm just going to put a prayer up here. You can pray this prayer along with me. Again, it's not about the words. It's more about your heart. That God will respond to the one who seeks him. The one who wants to know him. He will be found by the one who seeks him. So join me in, in praying this. Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, and that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. I believe that apart from faith in you, I will die in my sins, separated from God for all eternity. But I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross in my place, taking the penalty for my sin, and that you rose from the grave conquering death. I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit and bring me to spiritual life today. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.